Well, we're going to read from the Bible together now, and we're going to turn to Mark's Gospel and to Mark chapter 14. Uh, we're reading Mark 14, 53 down to verse 72. Uh, you'll find it on pages 851 over into 852 of the Pew Bibles. Page 851 over into 852. Uh, this is the story of Jesus before the council, before the religious leaders, and also the denial of Peter. Uh, and this is really where we're picking up our series, our Easter series. This is the starting point for it. And the end point is, of course, the resurrection. So Mark 5, uh, 14 tonight, beginning at verse 53 and reading down to verse 72. This is God's word to us. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say again to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you're one of them for you are a Galilean. But he, he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this evening. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 14. Uh, you'll find the passage that we read earlier on pages 851 and 852 of the Pew Bibles. And as you're turning that passage up, let's pray briefly together for a moment. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that as we draw close to the cross, to the story of Easter, that you would help us and guide us 
that you would come by your spirit and speak to all of us, that you would challenge us, that you would convict us, and that you would encourage us, and that the name of the Lord Jesus would be lifted high. We thank you for him, for all that he has done on our behalf, and we pray that in these moments we would focus on your word and on who Jesus is. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, as I've said this evening, we're beginning a new four-part series called Three Days That Changed the World. Uh, we're going to narrow in on Mark's account of Jesus' trial, death, and resurrection. Uh, we have worked our way through Mark's gospel during my time here in Bukna, but we're going back to Mark's account mainly because it's the most straightforward to understand. It's also been long enough since we were in Mark that we're able to go back to it. Uh, hopefully you'll find this Easter ser series helpful as we think again about what the Lord Jesus went through for us. Uh, it is good to be reminded of that. Um, to me, Easter stands awkwardly uh, as one of the three main holiday seasons. Uh, awkwardly because it's the one that people have the most trouble explaining. So you have the summer holidays when almost everyone is off simply because it's the summer. You have Christmas and that's the time of year when we give presents to each other. And there is some consciousness of something to do with Christianity in there. But, but Easter is different because people are off, but they don't really know why. We're going to explore why. We're going to explore Easter, the Easter story again together. And what we'll see is that the story of Easter is the story of three days that changed the world. What are some of the earth-shattering events that you remember most vividly? Uh, we're thinking here of national or world events that grab everyone's attention. Um, as someone who was born in 1990, there are probably four significant events that stand out for me. Uh, the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, although I don't really remember it. Uh, the 9-11 attacks in New York in 2001. The COVID lockdowns, I think they'll be ingrained in all of our minds for the rest of our lives. And then, and then the death of Queen Elizabeth II, the death of a Christian monarch in the right understanding of what it means to be a Christian. After events like the ones I've just mentioned, we're prompted to think things will never be the same again. Life will never be the same again. And in a sense, that's true. All of the events I've just mentioned changed our lives in some shape or form. But the history of our world tells us this. It tells us that nations will always be at war with each other pestilence and plague and disease will always be around and people who are important are mere mortals just like us. I had reason to sing the hymn the day thou gavest Lord has ended this week. It's a hymn that we don't sing an awful lot except at certain kinds of services but there's a line in that hymn which reminds us that God's kingdom is unlike earth's proud empires which ultimately pass away. In light of that, of the, the somewhat repeated refrain of history, uh, people often say that history is cyclical, that it just repeats itself over and over again. Uh, there's that overuse saying, those who don't learn from, uh, learn from the lessons of, of history are bound to repeat the errors of the past. Th that is true, and there, there are some important lessons to learn from history, but the Bible's view of history is different. According to the Bible, history is not is, is linear and it's not cyclical. It's cyclical to the extent that human beings are so broken and sinful that we end up making the same mistakes as those who have gone before us did. But, but history is linear because there is a start and end point. 
The starting point was creation. The end point will be the return of Christ and the ushering in of his eternal kingdom. A question that's worth asking is, is where on the, on the linear line of history do you, do you find the most significant moment? So imagine a long line that is representative of history. What on the line stands out? What, what, what moment throughout all of history, throughout all the history of the world, would you mark on the linear line of history and say, that is the moment that changed the world? I would put it to you tonight that the events recorded in Mark 14 to 16 are the most significant. They, they would only be a slither compared to the vast stretches either side, but the three days in which Jesus was tried, killed, buried, and rose again stand as three days that changed the world. Three days that changed the world in a way that nothing else has. What we're going to do over the next four Sundays is look again at what happened to Jesus and why it matters for us and hopefully it'll prepare our hearts for Easter and also stir us in our walk with Christ. I've said enough by way of introduction tonight, so I'm not going to say an awful lot about Mark's gospel and the context of it. You will be familiar enough with it to know enough about it. If there's one thing you need to keep in your mind, it's that Peter helped Mark write this gospel. That'll be really helpful for you to remember, tonight especially. This evening, we're looking at Jesus' trial before the Jewish religious leaders, and then also Peter's denial of Christ. Uh, the series will finish in Mark 16, so you might find it helpful to read ahead week by week. In my head, these sermons will be slightly different in that they'll perhaps be a bit more devotional, if that's the right word, and that means their form and structure will feel slightly different. Uh, normally, we have quite a tight structure with teaching points and so on. It's probably not gonna be the case over the next few weeks, not tonight anyway. T tonight I've got three words to guide us through this section and then we're going to finish with a few simple applications of this passage. So uh, enough, uh, introduction, uh, in enough of an introduction. Let let's look at what the Bible says about what happened to Jesus and let's think about why it mattered for us. This is three days that changed the world, part one. And here's our opening word to help us through this passage. Shambles, shambles, that's our first word. What happened to Jesus was an organized shambles. Let's read verses 53 to 59 again together. It says, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. At this point in the final hours of Jesus, several important things have already happened. He shared in Passover with his disciples. He has prayed in Gethsemane and he's been betrayed by Judas and arrested by the religious leaders. The betrayal by Judas and arrest by the religious leaders happened in the early hours of Good Friday. So time-wise, that's where this series is starting. And as the long, dark morning progresses, word is quickly sent to the Jewish religious leadership, the chief priests, elders, and scribes, informing them of Jesus' capture 
and calling them to gather at Caiaphas's house for a speedy trial. What's clear from verses 53 to 59 is that the Jewish leaders are in a massive hurry to get this done. They're trying to expedite the trial and arrive at the death sentence before the day progresses and news of Jesus' arrest can spread throughout all the pilgrims who are in Jerusalem for Passover. If they get this sorted early, they'll be in a much better position to control and spin the story from their perspective. But in their rush to get the guilty verdict over the line, the religious leaders aren't careful in their selection of witnesses. All they have are people who are giving contradictory accounts. Mark's telling of the scene highlights how much of a shambles it all is. Twice he points out that their testimony, the, the testimony of the witnesses, doesn't agree. The, the thing was, under Jewish law, no charges could stick unless there was the agreement of two witnesses. They can't even get two witnesses to agree on the same thing about Jesus. It's, it's an absolute shambles. The, the, the most serious charge Jesus' accusers are able to produce is his statement, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now, Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body and was presenting himself as the replacement of the physical temple, which would soon be destroyed by the Romans. Jesus will soon be the person through whom God's people will have complete and unhindered access to God. His words, though, were easily misinterpreted and twisted. In the retelling of what Jesus said, his accusers emphasize that, that it was a, a threat against the physical temple. They, they make it sound as if Jesus somewhat wanted to lead an, an armed mob to destroy the actual building. But as you can see in verse 59, even on this charge, even on this charge, the testimony of Jesus' accusers doesn't agree. It's a shambles. What's incredible is that God uses this shambles, this, this mess of a trial, to change the world in a way that nothing else has. And yet, despite the shambolic nature of, of all that Jesus is experiencing, he's still in control. That, that's our second word tonight, control. Shambles and control. J Jesus is in control of all that's happening. How could he not be? He, he responds to the claims of his accusers with utter silence. He knew the outcome of the proceedings was already determined and that there's nothing that he can say that will not be twisted and used against him. The court has already made up their mind and it's simply looking for the smallest grounds for the death sentence. So what does he do? Verse 61, but he remained silent and made no answer. His silence is important in another way because it also fulfills the prophecy made concerning the suffering servant in Isaiah. Isaiah said this, about the suffering servant. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that, that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus' silence places full responsibility on his accusers for the outcome of the trial. His silence causes the high priest to become impatient and so he finally snaps and says, verse 61, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now, this is a direct question and an affirmative answer, a yes answer from Jesus, will give Caiaphas a legitimate basis for requesting the death penalty from Pontius Pilate on grounds of insurrection and treason. 
This is the only question that really matters. And Jesus' answer doesn't disappoint. This is a mic drop moment from Jesus. Remaining in complete control, Jesus breaks his silence. And look at what he says. He says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus' words are, are layered with meaning. He applies both Daniel 7, 13 and 14 and Psalm 110, 1 and 2 to himself. He says that, that he is the divine son of man who will sit at God's right hand and come on the clouds to receive his universal and eternal kingdom. And with that answer, his fate is sealed. The affirmative answer seals Jesus' death on both theological and political grounds. Theologically, Jesus has blasphemed by claiming to be the Son of God, something that was completely unacceptable to the Jewish leadership. Politically, Jesus has claimed to be the one who will come as God's agent to receive cosmic kingship, something that will be unacceptable to the Romans who only recognize one emperor. The Jewish religious leaders now have what they want. Jesus has made a clear, self-incriminating statement in front of many witnesses that expresses his unique divine relationship to God and his, and his intention to establish God's kingdom on earth. Following his declaration, the high priest tears his robes and says, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And the answer comes back, guilty. He's guilty. And they all condemned him as deserving death. And after that, the beatings and humiliation begins. Spitting, striking. Yet through it all, Jesus is in control. He remains silent and in doing so fulfills an Old Testament prophecy about himself. He speaks truth about himself, but it's self-incriminating truth. Now, who does that? Who says something knowing that what they will say will bring the guilty verdict on themselves? No one, no one does that. But that's what Jesus did because he was in control and he knew what he had to go through. He knew what he had to experience. In my place, in your place, condemned he stood. Through his, his control, Jesus changes the, the, the world in a, in a way that nothing else has. Shambles, control, and then denial. That's our third word, denial. P Peter's denial of Jesus stands as one of the most poignant and memorable events that happened on Jesus' final day. It's a heartbreaking story. It's just, it's just heartbreaking. You couldn't write something as heartbreaking as this. One of Jesus' closest friends, a man who just hours earlier had sworn to stand by him no matter what, what no matter what the sacrifice or cost, denies even knowing Jesus and abandons him in his darkest hour. This section starts with a mention of Peter in verse 54, but it doesn't tell the story of Peter's denial until verses 66 to 72. Verse 54 tells us that Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Initially, it seems that Peter is gonna make good on his earlier pledges of loyalty when all the other disciples except one, probably John, abandon Jesus and flee for their lives, Peter follows and gets as close as he possibly can to the action. By going where he goes, 
Peter is putting his life on the line. It seems that he is determined to stay near Jesus until the end. He was probably hoping to blend in with the crowds of people and observe the proceedings from anonymous safety, but things don't go to plan. Look at verses 66 to 68. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. The accusation the servant girl makes is quite specific. She says she saw Peter with Jesus in the final week of Jesus' public ministry. She's sure of it, but Peter denies even knowing Christ. The rooster crows, but we're not told if Peter heard it. A little later, the same servant girl is back on Adam, and this time she's telling other people who are standing around, this man is one of them. Peter denies it again, and Mark doesn't let up on the action. He continues, verse 70, and after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you're one of them for you're a Galilean. It's Peter's accent that gives him away. He's a Galilean. He's a northerner in a big city. You'll know what it's like to go somewhere and to stand out because of your accent. That's what happens to Peter. Putting two and two together, the people around him conclude that he is, after all, one of Jesus' followers. At this point, Peter is pretty scared. His plan to blend in with the crowd and to observe the proceedings from anonymous safety has completely failed. What can he do to convince those around him that he isn't a follower of Jesus? The only option, the nuclear option that he has is tell them, yes, I am a follower of Jesus, or it's call down a curse on himself and solemnly swear that he doesn't know Jesus. What does he do? Verses 71 and 72. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. What would have happened if Peter hadn't denied Jesus and had openly acknowledged his allegiance to him? In short, it would have been very difficult for him. It was gonna be difficult enough for the Jews to have Jesus sentenced to death never mind one of his followers as well. But Peter wasn't as well known as Jesus and he certainly didn't have the, the, the same protection of popular approval. Who, who would notice if he just disappeared? With those fears in mind, Peter chooses the path of expedience instead of faithfulness. He was paralyzed by the fear of man rather than the fear of the Lord. The rooster crows and Peter knows the game is up. It must have been a chilling moment. You know that feeling of your blood running cold? That's what it must have been like. He had promised not to deny Jesus in Mark 14, 29, but by 1472, just a few hours later, it's done. One person puts what, follow, what follows the rooster's crow in this descriptive and dramatic way. Upon remembering Jesus' words, Peter rapidly leaves the courtyard, finds his way into the safety of the dark, maze-like streets of Jerusalem and weeps bitterly. Everything he thought he knew about himself, all his self-confidence and belief in his undying loyalty to his master has been shattered and lies in ruins. 
Three days that changed the world, part one. Shambles. Jesus' trial before the Jewish religious leaders was an absolute shambles. Control. Despite the chaos, Jesus remained in complete control. He fulfilled an Old Testament prophecy. Then in a mic drop moment, he says that he is the divine son of man who will sit at God's right hand and come on the clouds to receive his universal and eternal kingdom. And then denial. Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, a man who just hours earlier had sworn to stand by Jesus no matter what the sacrifice or cost, denies even knowing him and abandons him in his darkest hour. But what does it all mean? As we marinate in this passage, what do we learn? What does this do in our hearts? Well, here are a few simple closing applications. First, substitution is at the heart of the gospel. Substitution is at the heart of the gospel. In verses 53 to 65, Jesus stands before the council and is accused. Through those verses, we're reminded of the accusation directed at us and of the verdict we justly deserve. But Jesus remains silent before the religious leaders so that ever after he might speak for us. We deserve the judgment he received. He didn't defend himself even though he could have. This is the heart of the gospel, substitution. God in Christ took our place of condemnation and we freely received the gift of acquittal. He went where we deserved so that we could be with God. That is what it means to be a Christian. Lots of people don't understand what it means to be a Christian, but at a base level, to be a Christian is to have a substitute, to trust in a substitute, to trust in someone who has stood in your place. I'm reading the biography of a very high-profile motorbike racer at the moment. I've nearly finished the book. I'm not going to tell you who the racer is. You can ask me afterwards if you want. It's been a fascinating read, though, because I didn't know an awful lot about this person, and they lived a very interesting life. Something I learned about this person was that they did some charitable work, and it involved an awful lot of effort, a lot of traveling, and it was very, very unseen. In the book, though, the author writes about what this racer did, And he quotes someone who said this about the charitable work. Someone said, my wife was very impressed with what he had done. She said, that man is a real Christian. Now, not commenting at all on where the racer stood spiritually, but so many people think things like that. So many people think that being a Christian means that you do good things, that you're a nice person, that you're good living. The plain testimony of the Bible is that to be a Christian means that you have to have a substitute. You have to know a substitute. The stuff you do doesn't help and doesn't work. That's not how God operates. We cannot pay the price for our sin, but Jesus has. Substitution is at the heart of the gospel. When we trust in Jesus, our sin is transferred to him and we receive his righteousness, his purity, his perfection. Have you understood that? Have you turned to Christ in that way? Substitution is at the heart of the gospel. Second heart application, the the failures we experience need not define us. The failures we experience need not define us. Peter's denial of Christ is poignant, memorable, and heartbreaking. 
mainly because we so easily see ourselves in Peter's shoes. We have all done what he did. We have, it all, we have all at some point in our lives denied Christ, played down our faith, watered down our commitment, moved a conversation on. Peter denied Christ because he feared for his life. We deny Christ because sometimes we feel a little bit awkward. We feel a little bit uncomfortable. And I'm not sure which is worse. Yet the failures that haunt us and, and bump around our heads need not define us. We know the end of Peter's story. Mark doesn't major on it, but he gives us a hint that Peter will be restored. His restoration is told more fully in John 21, but just glance over to Mark 16. Jesus has been tried. Jesus has died. He's been buried. Peter is presumably hiding under a rock somewhere, weeping and lamenting his decisions on that fateful night. But Jesus has risen. And look at what the angel tells the women to do on that first resurrection morning. Mark 16, verse 7. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Do you see it? But go tell his disciples and Peter. Two words. It's very understated, but the mercy of Jesus stands out. And Peter. The Peter who so poignantly denied his Lord. The Peter who swore that he didn't know Jesus. The Peter we look at and think, do you know, I am just like him. The Peter who stumbled and denied and sinned, just like us, is later given the gift of repentance by Jesus. He's restored and used by God in the ministry of the early church. The failures we experience need not define us. That's what Peter's story tells us. When we understand the grace of God in all its beauty and glory, we're surely moved to love and honor and serve our Savior. Final heart application, and this is brief. The silence of the Son of God is a terrible thing. The frightening thing about Jesus' silence in verses 53 to 65 is that he's silent before the people who knew the scriptures, the churchy people, the people who thought they were okay spiritually. But his silence confirms their lostness. Their moment of grace, their opportunity to turn has gone. The Bible teaches us that you can hear but not hear. You can be physically present, listen to everything that's said in church, but be spiritually deaf, blind, and mute. The silence of the Son of God is a terrible thing to experience because it means you're lost. But tonight, through the scriptures, God still speaks and still calls you to come to him, to come to him through the substitute who has laid down his life, stood where you should have stood, and who has risen again so that you can have life forevermore. This world is passing away. The things that we think are really important aren't. The first Good Friday and Easter Sunday were three days that changed the world. Three days that have an ongoing relevance and impact if we know Jesus. And three days that can change your life if you would only turn to Christ. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, as we look at these precious verses in Mark's gospel, 
we realize that all we realize all that you've done for us and in a sense we're so humbled humbled because we realize again that we haven't saved ourselves but that you're the one who has reached down through the person of your son and who has drawn us to yourself so that we might know you how we thank you for the miracle of grace how we thank you for jesus our substitute the one who was killed on the cross put in the grave but who has risen victorious so that we might have life forevermore father as we come close to the cross over these next few sunday evenings we pray that you would you would stir our hearts in awe and wonder at what you've done for us and we also pray that you would you would be working in, in, in the lives of those who don't know Jesus, who haven't trusted in Jesus, so that they might come to know him personally for the first time as well. Father, we thank you so much for these precious verses. May they linger in our minds at the beginning of another week. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.